Welcome to the Continent of Resistance, a podcast with interviews and discussions on labor movements across Asia. Hello and welcome to this uh, very special episode. It's an episode of highlights from this year's uh, podcast that we have done. Kyung, how are you doing? So we're recording actually just after Christmas in 2023, but we're going to release in early January. How's the end of the year for you? Hi, Kevin, and, and hello, everyone. Um, I don't know. I feel like it doesn't hit me yet that this is the end of the year. Yeah, I know it's a few days, just a few days. You know, New Year's around the corner, but I'm still wrapping up. Right. I mean, wrapping my head around this <laughs> end of year. So, yeah, what about, yeah, you? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, the work is always continuing. It doesn't stop just because of holidays. But, you know, I think about the podcast we have been doing in the past year. You know, we, we only really only started in back in March. I think that's our first episode. And right. um, one of the things that I also want to hear what you think is, you know, we have done on many, many topics and about very different countries in Asia. And, you know, because obviously we are not expert in any single issue or country, for a lot of the episodes, you know, I think we are kind of getting all out of our comfort zone, right? We're right. talking about topics and things that we may know a little bit, but certainly not expert. How are you dealing with trying to talk about issues that are, you know, that are outside of your expertise, so to speak? Right. That's great. That's a great question. I mean, it's up and down. I mean, for me, it's like I've reflected a little bit about this. For me, it feels to me like, raising a baby you mm -hmm. know it's like at first in the first like three to six months you don't have a lot of sleep <laughs> and you know everything get blurred all together and yeah. yeah when i was you know having my baby i was oh the first first six months like oh my baby is so beautiful you know <laughs> <laughs> i thought he was really cute and then like a year later maybe nine months or a year, I looked back like, oh, at the photo, it's like, oh, he was not as cute as I thought, but now he's cute. So it's the same. Like uh -huh. I, I oh, at first, like, oh, wow, this was great. And I listened back again, right. go back to listen, like, mm -hmm, it's not as great as I thought, but I learned a lot. Yeah. As you said, it's a big learning curve. I yeah. went out of my comfort zone big time. Yeah. What about you, Kevin? Same, same. I think it's, you know, obviously we benefit from speaking to people who actually really know the subject matter well, you know, either they are researchers or they are organizers and activists. So obviously it's it, to continue your baby analogy, you know, it's where the babies or uh, ourselves, right? Like we're <laughs> right, learning right. from people, from organizers, activists, researchers that know a lot more than we do. And that, that's kind of how we grow as well, right? And we, we make mistakes as, as babies do. But that's all, that's really part and parcel of the learning process is making mistakes and, but also learning from mistakes. I think that's something that we, I think we had done okay for the lot in the last year is to mm -hmm. say, well, something that we have done previously was not great. How can we improve next time? Right. Yeah. I think growing is something really, yeah, it's, it's, something that I'm, I've been thinking about a lot, you know, doing this podcast, how I've grown in terms of learning, learning about 
subjects as well right. as the skills of doing this. And there also, as we discussed all the time, you and I, so I think there are a lot of things that we want to improve and a lot of ways that we want to try or we want to change, right? Exactly. And, you know, just like having a babies, we, I guess we take snapshots of their lives, right? <laughs> so right. this episode is kind of a snapshot of, I think, all the, the, the parts, like everything is, uh, you know, every part, every stage or every episode is, it's, there's something amazing, but we, you know, decided to make a selection of highlights, excerpts right. from each episode that we think. Right. Uh, encapsulate some of the, the questions that we have been thinking about or, or, or illuminating on a particular point. So we thought it's, uh, it would be useful at the end of the year as we're recording and we're releasing early next year to show, to share that snapshot, to share, you know, in a way, our personal favorite moments of the podcast. Right, right, exactly. Right, yeah. I think that's exactly why we wanted to do this. Right, and here's a selection of highlights. Let's start with your first selection, Kian. So we did episode on grab workers in Southeast Asia, in specifically in Vietnam, Indonesia, and a little bit Mount Thailand as well. Can you talk about the what the episode was about and why did you choose that particular uh, excerpt? Right. Yeah, I think the main reason we wanted to do this episode in the first place was. You know, in the past few years, not only last year, we saw the rise of organizing activities, right, among mm -hmm. among gig workers, especially the food delivery and courier in logistics and transport, right? And right. So yeah, we, this episode, so we talked about developments in these countries, and right. we want to focus, I think, on organizational mm -hmm. forms of labor organizations or forms of struggle, right, among them. And right. I picked the excerpt, I picked the part that I think is the most interesting in my view, mm -hmm. which is basically around the question of organizational forms. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So here's a clip. I think your piece at the end kind of called for the need to have in the independent, I don't know if I should use the term trade union or not, but in independent movements for, for the writers, right? I wonder if you could... Maybe if you have thoughts about the structure or, you know, you alluded to earlier about the, the physical space as well, maybe that that is also related to this issue. Mm. I guess, I, let me put it this way. The writers find it very difficult to organize themselves because of the nature of their employment activities. There's a few factors why it's hard to organize workers and create solidarity amongst the workers in Vietnam. The first reason is that there is a diversity of reasons and a diversity of, of people that choose to work as writers. So there are some educated people, but there's a lot of laborers as well. And so the disparity in education, for example, means that it's really hard for the workers to create a united voice and create a common mission for the organization of strikes uh, and so on to fight for their working conditions. The workers have different interests. However, they all want to be 
to have better working conditions. Particularly in Vietnam, it's about pay. They all want to have a decent work for decent pay conditions. And so when we asked them whether they were interested in having a, a um, independent union representing them, the answer was yes, they wish to do so. Um, the problem in Vietnam is that the environment doesn't allow for that to arise unless and until the government ratified ILO's Convention 1987 and 98, yeah. That, that's right. Yes, right. So unless until the government ratifies right of the riders to organize independent union, it would be very difficult for the workers to do so. Now, in the absence of that, what the workers have done is organize informal, if you like, unions. So they can't organize formal, they have to organize informals. So many of those informal unions are on social media. Yeah. The trouble is that the trouble is that most of those social media groups created for as a, for more social purposes rather than having a clear mission, a clear agenda to fight for the, the working conditions or the interests of the group. However, in Vietnam, there are some groups that has been stronger. And so what's happening is that those groups that uh, have strong leaderships, right, what the platform companies have done, for example, what Grab has done is Grab has invited those groups to join them, to have an association with them. Mm. Yes. And so those groups have joined Grab and and Grab has provided notional support to those groups in terms of like uh, giving workers some presents at Christmas time or something. At the same time, there are advantages for having an association with Grab in that there is a communication between the riders and and Grab. So, so Grab and the riders would meet up once a month to hear about the issues concerning the drive concerning the riders. Mm. Now, what the leaders have told me is that prior to the pandemic, there was a working relationship. There was mutual respect uh, on both sides. But after the pandemic, with the downturn in the economy and with the oversupplies of riders on the street working, that working relationship has totally broken down. And so the face-to-face meeting has been cancelled. Instead, it's now met uh, online only. Right, uh, right. But more importantly, the outcome of those meetings have deteriorated because the leaders have told me that Grab is no longer interested in hearing or in, in resolving their concerns. Right. Yes. And so it's, it's clear now that the power shift, there's a, a clear power shift because of the downturn of the economy uh, right. towards the platform yeah. company. And that kind of organizational structure is not working either. Right, um, right. 
Yes, and so there needs to be a new way of organizing and of and of a struggle between dividers and the platform economy. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really helpful, Tom, in terms of your assessment of the organizational structure and and form,、mm-hmm. because I think for many writers in different countries. You know, they're exploring. They're obviously there are political constraints, but there are also other kind of constraints, and so that workers are exploring different forms, right? Whether it's social media, informal, structural mutual aid, or in some places, unions are independent unions are allowed. They may decide to form a union. I, I, w- I want to ask also Reza this question about organizational structure. What kind of organizational structures do the writers in Indonesia? Have adopted, and also, you know, just like Tom, what's your assessment of the the success or challenges of、uh, such organizational form? Okay, the structure of organization in here is such like a community, and then the establishment of the community is closely related to organizational culture of the people in it.、Uh, Some of community established with a motorcycle gang culture, and then they will apply a violent effort to creating caring action when they having some problem, such as raiding a traditional driver who are in conflict with online driver. And then there are a voluntary culture make the community heavily involved in a rapid response efforts, such as escorting ambulance, helping coworker who have accident, and some community organizer organizer who had previously been involved in labor union factory, when they want to push the community to establish a labor union. So, and. Because the only image of the union in Indonesia is only manufacturing union. So, in effect, the work system of the food industry is different. Of course, it will create problems such as a fluid a non-permanent member, flexible flexible work location, and another.、Uh, but、uh, the more important is the principle and the value of the resistance in the labor union. That、uh, I mean, we should support and disseminate among the driver community. And for the challenge itself, first the biggest challenge in organizing is in the midst of declining working condition for drivers. Some community organizer find it difficult to find order and even only get order only two times a day. So it's the probably the major、uh, biggest. Challenge,、uh, mm. and then we find to the large driver community is still dominated by a community created secretly by the applicator.、Mm. So they, they 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 created this to prevent uprising protests in other community. And then we found the the fluid membership structure within the community. I mean the information is easily leaked when planning a protest, such as. A spy from the applicator or from the local police,、uh, so because they are very fluid membership in the community. Uh, uh, and now、uh, some community are in process to form a union,、uh, including they conducting hearing with、uh, manpower office.、Uh, and in the midst of this legal vacuum, I mean there are no there are no legal about. Can the driver or can the driver online make a union? It is very important to us to see how the go, 
the government such as manpower office to respond this thing i mean if they don't want to you cannot do you can establish a union because your partnership it's it's with be interested to to the the movement in here so we we still waiting some of communities already later uh, later and want to hearing with the manpower office so that is in, in from indonesia The next clip, Kyung, you have selected, continuing on the theme of logistics. So we did this really interesting, fascinating interview about the logistic workers' power, and then specifically on the truck driver strike in Korea. Can you introduce the clip? Right. Yes. Yes. In this episode, where we featured Korean trucker strikes and talked about or can, talked about logistic workers in general. Right. This clip, I think, the reason I chose this is that because really focused on the power resource analysis, where we actually kind of break down what they are, and you know, we started with talking about structural power and associational power of the workers, and I think we also went on to talk about other sources of power, and right. you know, at the end, we talked about example, the example of Korean truckers. And I think this is this is quite illuminating. Yeah, right. And I th- I think you know just reflecting on both of these episodes that we done on you know transportation in a way transportation logistic workers. You know I, I think for at least for me you know I, I had my start you know with labor my original initial interest in labor was with factory workers. So getting my head around how transportation workers logistic workers organize it's it's been really fascinating. I don't know. If that's something also uh, interesting, because you have been working on platform worker for a while, but it's also something that I think that it's still new and 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 evolving. Right. Yeah. I think for me, there are questions of strategies, right? There are question of strategies and tactics and what workers do that continue to fascinate me. But I think the the bigger question that I I'm really interested in, and I think in these two episodes we covered we covered it a little bit. It's a question of power, and this right. is I think this is the one of the central questions that our podcast tried to do. Right. I think this is so. Yeah, so it's the excerpt might be able to kind of show where the where the power of workers lie, and yeah, I hope it it helps us thinking about this. Yeah, exactly. And here is the clip. I think, in principle, when we talked about about workers' leverage, we tend to think that you know logistic workers or a certain group of of them hold strategic you know positions because they have more power to disrupt the the circulation or linking back to production, as you said, right? And I wonder, from your experience, you know, to what extent the workers. Can can exercise this power, especially you know, you know, in theory, scholars talk about like the choke points. Point, talk yeah. about yeah, and yeah, maybe you could help us understand what it means in in practice. Um, mm-hmm. Which groups of workers actually can can exercise their power at the choke points, and how do they actually build their their power and and exercise this leverage? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's right. And one of the kind of one of the sexy or like exciting things about the logistics revolution and logistics and this idea of just in time, right? Where you're reducing stores and transport and logistics become much, much more important to successful capitalist production is that then structurally that should give workers in, in particular parts of the supply chain, an ability to cut off the supply chain, therefore have a bigger, quicker impact on, on profits, right? And, and therefore be able to exercise their power. And, and so, you know, choke points are things like, you know, like a very important warehouse would be a, or, or a port. Or if you can organize, um, and this did in fact happen in the, the truck strikes last year, you know, if you can organize, the majority of truck drivers who are driving, who are transporting cement from production to distribution sites or from distribution sites to construction sites, then you can like shut down buildings, right? The building process, which, which did happen here last year. And so, you know, there, that, that is really structural power that transport workers traditionally have in the logistics revolution then kind of strengthens in theory. But the, I think the flip side is that the the multiple levels of subcontracting that happened with the logistics revolution have put workers in much more precarious positions, which mm -hmm. makes them harder to, to organize, right? And so structurally, they should be able to exercise that power, but because it's harder to organize them, some in many cases, you know, that's that's not possible. Um, and right. yeah, that's yeah. that's also capital right. strategies, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah, you um, actually remind me of our work with gig workers. You know, yeah. I work with courier and writers in Thailand. Cool. And, yeah. and well, talking about structural power, you know, we we talk to them about their sources of power, where did is where did where do they draw their power from? And you know, as you said, you know, they know that they have some structural power due to the now the the influence of the platform like grab in Thailand, right? Like people have to rely on the platforms to get their food or to get their stuff moving around from, from one place to another. But at the same time, as you said, you, I totally agree. They have on the flip side, the way that this work, this gig is designed is that the platform can, can easily replace them with other workers. So mm -hmm. they, but I, I actually want to kind of go deeper because when mm -hmm. people talk about power, especially from the perspective of uh, power resources analysis, you know, they, yeah. talk, they tend to talk about structural and organizational yeah. power. Associational. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Associ associational power. Which, and institutional, yes. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe links that structural mm -hmm. power to associational power, and perhaps you can give us some examples about mm -hmm. how, yeah, about what happens, what you observe. Okay. So it, it'll be easiest for me to answer that question if I use the experience of truck drivers in South Korea, because it's the one that's closest to my heart. So structural power is, right, the place that these workers have in the economy. Are they in a place where they can, they can do damage? to the economy. In fact, they are. But associational power comes from coming together, right, in an organization and being able to act collectively. And the the impediment, and then there's the third thing is institutional power, which is what kind of power do like laws and maybe bargaining structures give you, right? And usually if you have the first two, you can get good the second ones, right? So organizing power, associational power and structural power, it helps you win institutional power, like good laws. So it's good structural power for truck drivers, but the law is, you know, they've, they've been as part of 
neoliberalism, logistics revolution, they, they've been all made into self-employed, formerly self-employed drivers. So by law, they don't have the right to form trade unions. Their right to collective bargaining is not legally protected. And what the truck drivers in Korea have done is ignored the law and formed their own trade union anyway, organized on on a sectoral basis. So instead of by company by company, like we have to build power in a region you know, and, and in some cases in a particular supply chain. And so they got over this, they got over this kind of institutional limitation, came together, you know, and, and used very effectively create, you know, effective organization, associational power and brought those things, two things together and have been doing very effective strike action for years and years. The result of that was to institutionalize, even though their, their trade union rights aren't formally respected, institutionalize what is essentially industrial bargaining structure, which was the safe rate system, which created a committee with the clients who are the, the ones who contract for supply chain representatives, transport company represents the union and government to set rates and conditions for, for truck drivers. And so that, that is a good example of how structural and associational power came together, one institutional power, and they were doing a good job of using it. And then, but then the limitations of not being, well, of not having formal trade union rights, but then also particularly of severe government repression have, have kind of, you know, they've created new challenges uh, in this moment. What galvanized so much attention was the truck drivers strike last year end of last year in Korea. And, you know, we're talking about sort of disruptive power or the power to disrupt. Can you give us some concrete sense how much disruption, for example, that strike cost? No, no, maybe not specific amount of dollars lost per se, but can you give us a sense of how we can think about the amount of disruption, hence their power that transportation workers could have? Yeah, so they were. I can give you a euro figure, <laughs> they, or a one figure. There, there were two strikes last year around the defense and extent, extension of the safe rate system on a national level, and by some estimates, the collective direct direct economic impact was 5.8 trillion won, which is roughly 4 billion euros. And the way that that was done was, you know, sort of in the large scheme of things, shutting things down, but not just every, I mean, many truck drivers stopped driving, including non-members, but in particular, they did what I was talking about before, stop transport at specific petrochemical complexes at ports, at construction sites, fuel distribution, right? So by targeting those specific, very important pieces of the economy and stopping transport in, in those areas, they were able to have this, this impact, right, across. So in fact, the level of transport going in and out of ports dropped to, you know, like 20%. And it, there were times when, you know, building construction, construction sites basically stopped. And, you know, th there was a lot of news about, you know, the, the supermarkets or the convenience stores don't have enough. So they, they can't stock their soju and beer. Right? Right, right. So, you know, we saw this through, through the economy. I mean, as somebody living on a daily basis, you know, like every day, did my everyday life, you know, like did something, did I feel it on an everyday level? No, actually. But I mean, if you're in the construction business, you would have, you would have felt it, right? Well, right. so doing beer can be disruptive if, you know, we can't find him. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, I, I, I you, you were right. Exactly. 
You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. All right, Kevin, and the next excerpt is from, I think, from episode three, right? So do you want to talk about why you chose this excerpt and what is this about? Sure. So we did this episode about May Day. So we recorded it just a few days, I think a few weeks before May Day. We spoke with a very young labor activist organizer, Kara, from the Philippines. I, you know, it's a quite wide-ranging conversation that we had covering a lot of topics. But one of the things that I, I remember quite well is her talking about growing up in a you know, very political family. I think her both her parents are were activists or teachers or act, and activists. And also her experience of growing up in indigenous communities and also learning about this sort of culture of resistance, which I, I find really fascinating. So in, in this clip I chose, Kara spoke a little bit about her growing up, her experience with the indigenous community, but also in the context of the Philippines, what works means, the changing meaning of work, and also what a worker is. It's, it's no longer necessarily a, a factory worker, a male factory worker. And, and she highlighted in particular, I think that the biggest challenge in the, for the Philippine labor movement is what she calls contractualization, basically a very precarious form of short contract work. So here's a clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, May 1st, I, I'm wondering what May Day means to you, uh, either personally mm-hmm. or or to the labor movement in the Philippines. How, how is that celebrated or not celebrated? And so that's the May 1st will be in a few days. And if we were talk about May Day for me as a person, it would be like, I'm, I dread, I dread the May Day. Um, because uh, as organizers, you know, as organizers, you have to prepare for everything mm-hmm. you have to do. Yeah. You have to keep the mobilizations and then the program and then the banners that you have to bring. So a lot of things on your mind. And, um, so personally, it's a dreadful day for me because you're always tired. And before that, the days before that, the build up, the weeks before that. You start to get a lot of schedules, <laughs> stuff like that. Right. But then it's also a fulfilling day. It's also a fulfilling day for us because all the hard work that you've done weeks, months prior to that would be like a culmination of everything that you've done in the past. Um, but in the Philippines, this May Day is very important. First of all, it's um, the 120th May Day in the Philippines. So the first May Day in the Philippines was in 1902. And it was led by the Union Obrero Democratica, the first union in the Philippines. Right. So, so this is the 120th. And then this is also the first May Day under the new president that we have. So, right. so it, it's a really challenging time for, for the current workers, for the trade union movement to do something big and different for this year's May Day. And it's also always similar to the, um, the first May Day in the world. The first May Day in the Philippines was also met with, you know, brutality, violence. It was actually a rally of hundreds of thousands of workers for wage increase and other benefits of workers. That was in 1902. And it's still the same as we want 
it now in 2023. Uh, sorry, the correction is that the first May Day is 1903 and uh-huh. now it's 2023. I wonder if you, you know, thinking about your family again, thinking about your dad when you grew up, okay. th- did it mean anything to you? Do you, when you think about May Day as a uh, child, does, uh, it, does it mean any significant events or did, what, what did you remember about May Day? Mm-hmm. As a person, aside, aside from the way I yeah, mentioned a while right. ago, I have one photo of me in the May Day rally. I was a very small child yeah. back then. So that's some of the activities that we were joining. Mostly were May Day activities in their, in their area of work. And then when I came to college, I got to know more about the importance of May Day. Right. So yeah, that took then, you to the, to the uh, May Day rally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My parents always took me to different types of rallies. And sometimes, even when they didn't want to, I insisted, insisted in joining. <laughs> right, right. So, it, it, was it in the province or in yeah. Manila? So can, In the province. Yeah. Can you, do you remember what happened? What's your impression about it? So, my province is in Baguio City. It's in, in the Cordillera region. And since I mentioned a while ago, we, ha- we are a community of indigenous peoples right. in the Cordillera. So it's usually a program where there are manifestations, there are people speaking, but more importantly, there are a lot of cultural performances. Right. Like there, I don't know how you call it in different parts, but we have the gong. We call it, what do you call Gangs dansa. Uh-huh. We call it dansa, but the gongs and they make rhythms and make music. Right. And then um, while you're dancing, well, they, they are playing, playing that. Usually the men are playing the gongs. The women uh, are dancing. We call them taduk. Yeah. And women are dancing taduk. So it's a cultural activity. That sounds um, like fun. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually a community dance. Right. It's, but it's also a cultural activity that's incorporated in the manifestations. So right. it's actually um, one thing. And then there are a lot of songs. What's a... I find very interesting where, where I came from. They have very good um, songs. We call them Salidumay. So Salidumay is also a traditional song. Uh-huh. But the, you can change the lyrics um, and then the lyrics reflect like the struggles and the campaigns of the time. So that's very interesting. For right. Us. So, I mean, in, in Thailand, you know, because, because the, as I said, the Labor Day is more associated with the trade union movements and, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, Mostly, you know, participants in, in the rally or, or like members of Labor Confederation or Labor Congress, mm. which are, yeah. you know, state sanctions, right? Which, mm. so, so we, yeah, there's, there's this kind of disconnect with you think about May Day, you mm. see small groups of, I don't know, should I use like labor aristocrats <laughs> as a term to describe <laughs> disconnect between this group and the larger uh, people who work, right? People who, yeah. you know, in everyday life, like, like for example, what we call informal workers. Yeah. Uh, in the informal economy, you know, people who don't yeah. have that kind of contract or, yeah. or relationships, but but they they're working class, that, which mm-hmm. do not actually celebrate May Day. Yeah, I mean that that that's something. Uh, it's gonna be, uh, let, let's talk about this because basically the changing meaning of what mm. a worker is, right? Uh, I think. As Ken was saying, right, like I think the majority of workers in Asia are 
in the informal sectors yeah. are now in factories. They're now in sort of blue color, uh, color mm -hmm. employment. But, but that image is still, I think is stuck with us. Like what, mm -hmm. what's, I wonder what, what you both think that the sort of changing, changing meaning of what a worker is. If you can reflect on, on that in like in your own experience and observations. We've been studying a lot about the different types of um, work that has like, yeah, what, what you call this? That's the, that's developed, that's been developed over the years. And first one is that we have what we call the contractual work, the short term contractual work. We called it in the Philippines contractualization. And it has heavily affected the rate of unionized workers. Right. right. Because if you go back, so we usually consider the Philippine constitution as the basis of defining workers. Uh -huh. So workers are entitled to living wage, decent work, how do you call this, and regular employment. Right. And we think that everyone, uh, and if you base that on, and if you base the meaning of the worker on that, then a lot of workers are not workers. Right. So we, yeah. So we try to consider who are the workers who are not getting visa, who are not achieving this one, because they should mm. still be part of the workers, but we have to do an effort, make an effort to be, to make them become part of the, the people who are benefiting from the, the, the rights that were stated in the, right. in the Southeast Constitution. Right. And over the years, there has been a lot of changes in the Philippines. So like, there was a lot of pull out of garment factories, mm. of garment multinational corporations in the Philippines. So if you think about it, where have, where have the workers gone? Where, where did right. the workers go? Right. And then there's also a debate that the Philippines is already an industrialized country because there's a growing number of service workers, mm. of workers in the service sector. So this is the end of the part one of our highlights episode. We'll continue with more selection of clips in part two. You have been listening to the Continent of Resistance podcast. You can download our latest episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also visit our website at laborreview.org. See you until next time.